Well, that's um, uh, such a kind introduction that I had a kind of double feeling, immense gratitude to an old friend, but also a sense that this is, this is the CV of a life of a man who can't settle. You know, he just <laughs> got to settle down, you know. Um, but I thank uh, Louise particularly for that introduction. Uh, we go back, as she says, to uh, days at Harvard where she was a much-admired expert on uh, terrorism and a great teacher. And then I saw her handling with um, Irish humor and dispassion how to uh, safeguard the University of St. Andrews as Scottish nationalism rose all around her, and she managed those challenges with um, grace and, again, her humor. And now she's made history as the first female vice chancellor of one of the world's greatest Universities, So that also is a trajectory that everyone in this room should admire. Um, I also wanted to draw attention to a couple of people who've been wonderful to me as we've done this project. And this is a talk about a project, so I'm going to tell you about where I've been and what we did. But the people who made it possible are in the room. Noburo Moriyama is in the room. There he is. Uh, and and Noburo... Um, if you ever go to Tokyo, the nicest and luckiest thing that could ever happen to you is to be taken around Tokyo and Kyoto by Noburo and his wife. And I want to pay a, a personal tribute to your kindness and generosity through the whole period of our, of our work. Um, and then the other person who made everything possible uh, was Joel Rosenthal. You have to understand what they made possible. They allowed me to go literally around the world in search of a large and diffuse question. They encouraged me. They didn't stop me. They didn't blow the whistle. They didn't say, you're burning through the cash at too fast a rate. They didn't say, are you crazy? What are you doing? They supported it uh, with a kind of blind faith that I find deeply touching. And this is my opportunity to thank them personally for this kind of faith in scholarship, because it's not easy to have that kind of faith in scholarship where you don't know what's going to happen and whether it's going to turn out. And tonight I have to kind of deliver, don't I? I have to show them that <laughs> something happened here. We did some good work. And I'm also very pleased to be with Julian uh, Savulescu, and um, particularly because um, the Uehiro Carnegie Oxford Lecture is in Practical Ethics, Emphasize the practical, terribly important. Uh, universities, I think, really live and die not merely in thinking beyond the realms of the real, beyond the realms of the actual. They really do derive their mandate and justification from their capacity to be practical, to ask real questions about the world and try as hard as we can to provide real answers and practical answers. Practical meaning doable answers feasible answers, actionable answers. Uh, and so I resonate very strongly to the mission of the center, and uh, I hope that I will have some extremely theoretical things to say at one point, but the intention is uh, practical. Now, I've got to get these slides to work, and I don't know whether I can. Can I? How do I do that? Whoops. What do I do? <laughs> We've just ended our slideshow. Can somebody rush down here and help? Oh. Sorry about that. Thank you. What I'm, what I'm going to do is talk to you with some slides, not too many. Ah, there we go. 
What's your secret? <laughs> okay. Um, let me start by with an incredible woman. I start here because in some sense, this Carnegie You a Hero project in a sentence was an attempt to figure out what has happened to the moral language of the world since the human rights revolution inaugurated in 1945. And so it's a historical question. What did the creation of the human rights universe, the human rights discourse, the human rights institutions, human rights law, do to the way in which we reason? And the person who put this question best uh, was Eleanor Roosevelt. As you know, she was uh, the chairman of the committee that drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. She was a widow, a grieving widow, uh, and but one of the most important contributions that she made was to steer people from five continents to produce the document which in 1948, more than any other document, has defined what human rights uh, stands for in the world and what human rights has become. Now the thing about her is she raises this question. How do you judge the success of human rights? Do you judge it by state ratifications, the numbers of states that have ratified all the conventions? Do you attempt to uh, evaluate uh, the success of human rights by the degree to which states comply with these human rights instruments? Do you evaluate it in terms of the ways in which uh, international human rights organizations, the UN, the uh, other uh, bodies, uh, can promote human rights and influence the behavior of states? How do you even ask the question about what has human rights done to the world since 1945? Most people answer the question, as I've just suggested, by focusing on state practice or non-practice, as the case may be. But Eleanor, God bless her, asked a completely different question. And here is, I'll show you. In 1958, 10 years after the uh, Universal Declaration, she was asked to give a speech about the 10th anniversary of the Universal Declaration. And in that speech, she said this, where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person, the neighborhood he lives in, the school or college he attends, the factory, farm, or office where he works. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meanings there, they have little meaning anywhere. Notice what her criteria for the success of human rights is. It's in the little places. The little places meaning your conscience, your heart, your instincts, your moral instincts, not state practice, not the proliferation of human rights institutions, but something much more personal and much deeper. And it became one of the most famous things she ever said. And because she was Eleanor, it was completely extemporaneous, by the way. Um, but, but here's the, the point. Uh, 
there's a little research agenda in there. If you take Eleanor really seriously, you want to ask, what has human rights done in the small places, the intimate places, the conscience inside all of us? And that, believe it or not, was the crazy question that we asked ourselves in the Carnegie Yuhiro Project. We asked, first of all, is human rights a global ethic, by which we, we meant, has human rights diffused throughout the world and become the dominant language of moral discourse? Is it a discourse that it is, has displaced religious languages, other languages of moral suasion? Has it achieved the status of a global ethic? Another alternative is it hasn't achieved that. It's not a global ethic in that sense. It's simply the public discourse of state elites. It's not a language, now I begin to use some of my lingo, a language of ordinary virtue. It's not a language of ordinary people. It does not structure uh, the conscience and moral instincts of ordinary people. It remains where it began as a language of states and state practice only. And then the question becomes, if it's chiefly or mostly a language of state practice, what influence, if any, has it had in shaping what I call the ordinary virtues? When I use the phrase ordinary people, I don't mean somebody else somewhere in another room. I mean you and me, okay? And by ordinary virtues, I mean simply the, the, the almost reflexive, unthought, um, we hardly even think about them, behaviors that are driven by virtue. The sense in which we trust people without reasoning too carefully. We engage in activities of tolerance which we often can't quite uh, justify or explain, but we are tolerant to others. We forgive, we are reconciled to others, and we show resilience in the face of catastrophe and calamity. Is there any sense in which human rights has helped to structure those virtues in, in all of us? These are the kind of, and let's be, let's be honest, these are impossibly difficult questions. They're impossibly large questions, which is another reason why I'm so grateful to the Carnegie Council and to the Hero Foundation for even allowing a lunatic to try and ask them, let alone answer them, with a global uh, a global tour. Let me describe how we then set about to think about how you would answer them. There are ways of doing this. You can do survey research. We could have commissioned Pew Research, which does global polling, and asked a set of human rights coded questions of a large sample. And I thought that wouldn't work because it seemed to me we were after something much more intimate, much more personal. If you cue some questions on human rights, you will get a statistically significant sample. And some researchers are doing this, and they come back, and what they come back with in a sentence is, actually, human rights is an elite discourse. That's what they find. But I wanted to not stop there. I wanted to go deeper and ask as many ordinary people as I could in as many different cultures as I could, how human rights actually structures, to the degree that it structures at all, their moral reflections on not just their personal lives, but mostly the, the public issues that 
shape their moral reflection. Corruption and public trust, inter-ethnic tolerance, reconciliation after conflict, inequality, recovery and resilience after environmental catastrophe. In other words, I was asking, how do ordinary people sitting around the table in their kitchens or in a bar or in a favela, as you will see, or in a, in a, in a, a illegal settlement in South Africa, how do these people think about their political and social world? I mean, it is a feature of modernity that in every society, societies are in crisis, in conflict, in difficulty, in contention. And ordinary people sit and try to make sense of the contention, the conflict, the bitterness, the hatred, the violence in their societies. And I wanted to see whether when they reflect about those things, they are or are not using human rights. And if they're not using human rights, what language are they using? How did we go about this? We had formalized ethical dialogues with experts, judges, professors, journalists, public intellectuals in structured form. And that was fascinating and revealing, and we went to seven or eight countries to do that. But I think the innovation was what we called our site visits, where we just got off the reservation entirely, uh, went to favelas, went to bars, went to police stations. Police stations turned out to be deeply important. Um, why deeply important? Um, I'm a liberal. I'm sort of sometimes a liberal philosopher. The absolute sine qua non for the legitimacy and viability of liberal democracy is whether cops beat you up because of your race, basically. It's the cops who either deliver the promises of liberal democracy or the bets are off. And you'll see why the cops are so important. But we spent a lot of time talking to cops. What do you think about toleration? What do you think about forgiveness? These were extremely interesting and sophisticated discussions. The result, finally, I can say this to Joel, there will be a result. It's not just all hot air. There will be a book, and it will be called The Ordinary Virtues, Moral Operating Systems in a Post-Imperial World. What did I mean by moral operating systems? I was very struck. It was a feeling that came to me when we were in Los Angeles, particularly, um, that cities have moral operating systems. There, there's a sort of tacit moral world, a tacit set of conventions that are semi-automatic in a successful global city. You take for granted the otherness of others. You take for granted that you will not be beaten up. You take for granted it's almost like getting on the freeway. You take for granted that the other drivers will adjust their behavior to you. There's a whole way in which cities need to be modeled or thought about as moral operating systems. And we saw those moral operating systems uh, in action, in particularly in Los Angeles and New York. All the time, I'm trying to get a tacit, unthinking, unconscious moral behavior as being if there's anything that holds us together, it's actually that. Um, and it's the constant daily reproduction of the ordinary virtues and, the, and our sense that we can rely on them 
that constitutes the moral operating systems we were trying to get at. Okay, let me just very briefly, uh, and I give you a little government health warning, the photographs you're about to see were taken by me, and therefore therefore they are uniquely bad. Um, All right, but I give you some idea of where we were. We began this whole process in a very dramatic way. We went to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil to talk about corruption and public trust. And we had to, this is to give you the flavor of this kind of research, we had learned discussions with jurists and politicians and academics in a a big building right on one of Brazil's main streets. And in the middle of this, we began to hear drums and marching and people passing by the windows carrying flags and banners. It was June 2013. And suddenly, what we, what we realized is that there were massive street demonstrations. What were they protesting? Corruption. What were they lamenting? The collapse of public trust. We had just spent two days in learned discussions on this subject, and suddenly, the country was convulsed by the question. So what does a responsible social scientist do? you get out of the building and follow the crowds. And we did for the next three days, just listening and talking to young Brazilians. Here are young Brazilians with whom I pose who have just put together a poster that says, there are so many things wrong with Brazil, we can't get them on one poster. Here, what was so interesting about uh, these demonstrations was a sense of moral fury about corruption. What's sending these people out into the streets is a very basic instinct. Just how stupid do you think we are? Just how dumb do you think we are? That resentment, anger, moral anger at the betrayal of their political class seemed to me an extremely significant fact, and we spent a lot of time listening to their sense of betrayal and anger. And then we went into favelas to talk to the people. This was mostly a middle-class group who were demonstrating, the new middle-class created by the Brazilian boom of the 90s and uh, the first decade of the 21st century. These are Lula's children, and what they're furious about is Lula got his face in the troughs. He promised them a different politics. He promised them an honest politics. And what they got was more of the same. So we, we followed those demonstrations. The demonstrations also were extremely violent. This is one aspect of globalization that needs to be talked about. Anti-capitalist, uh, anti, anti-capitalist uh, protests against the course of globalization took the form in Rio of savage uh, destruction of uh, cash machines. These are cash machines that have just been taken apart. So there are some incandescent furies at work in these demonstrations, which we were trying to uh, understand. From Rio the following year, we went to south-central L.A. Why did we go to L.A.? Because, I said earlier, Cities have moral operating systems. The core of those moral operating systems is actually forms of justice. 
police who don't beat you up because of your race. Why do you go to L.A.? Because in 1965 and 1992, that's precisely what the police did. They beat people up because of their race. And the place exploded. The interesting thing about L.A., and this is why the the moral dimensions of civic order are so important, L.A. is an extremely unequal place. There's a lot of poverty in L.A. There always has been. There's a lot of inequality in L.A. There always has been. That you can live with. What you cannot live with is being beaten up because of your race. Because it violates the thing that's on the box of the society, which is equal protection under the law. And so we wanted to remoralize the question of public order in cities and remoralize the question of why trust collapses and remoralize the question then of how you rebuild it. This this tough-looking dude here is an ex-gang leader from South Central L.A. who was an enforcer for one of the gangs. He had decided after much reflection and a certain amount of time in the federal penitentiary that he wanted to go in a different way. We talk about redemption as a virtue. We talk about turning away from a bad path. He's a very interesting example of that. He sees his social purpose as rebuilding the moral operating system of his community so that it is not taken over by predators and uh, criminals. So we talked to those kind of people intensively and learned an enormous amount from them. We also went to Jackson Heights, Queens. Why did we go to Jackson Heights, Queens? Because it is the most diverse uh, census tract in the United States. Uh, you get off the subway, it's the subway up there, or the, the L, you go downstairs and you got 85 ethnic groups within a square mile competing for housing, for jobs, for space. Again, the moral operating system question is posed. How do complete strangers who do not speak the same language, who do not follow the same, worship the same gods, who are competing in antagonistic ways in job markets, how do they produce a moral order? They do. Jackson Heights is one of the most celebratedly successful multicultural experiments in the world. It's a gigantic bus station, people flowing in all the time, flowing out, people not able to communicate in the same languages, somehow reproducing a moral order based on minimal forms of trust. How does that become possible? That was a question we wanted to ask. We then went back to a a place that I've spent a lot of academic and personal time in, that is Bosnia. This is a man who lives in a small village called Karachevo in Bosnia. Behind him are about 280 white graves. Those of you who know the Balkans and know Islam knows those are Islamic uh, uh, graves. These were people from his village, he's of Muslim origin, who were massacred in the summer of 1992 in one afternoon. 280 people were shot and buried in bulldozed into uh, graves. And this man made it his life's work to rebury each one, to find the bodies, 
sometimes all he had was DNA scraps. Sometimes all he had was, was uh, uh, a fragment of bone. Identify each person. Put each person back in. Give the, the, the honor that a burial entitled to. The interesting thing here is that he lives in Karachevo, which is in Republika Srpska, those of you who know, is that he's doing this activity in a place where his percentage of the population is now down below 5% of the citizenry. In other words, ethnic cleansing has worked. They used to be 40% of the population. Now they're down to 5 Why does a person do that? Why doesn't a person just go to Sweden or Denmark and give up and start a new life? Hundreds of thousands of Bosnians did. He stayed. How is he then reconciled with people who murdered his entire village? And he is. He is. And he's reconciled for... Here's, here's where you get an insight from someone. I asked him how you could be reconciled and continue to live among people who murdered your people. And he made a remark that stayed with me through the whole trip. He said, I don't generalize. I don't generalize. Think about the moral weight of that remark. I don't generalize about all Serbs. I take them one at a time. There's deep moral insight in, in that instinct. To particularize, to be empirical, to insist that moral judgment is a matter of the person in front of you, not a matter of making collective judgments about people. He lives in this community, now a minority in a place that was once his home, by not generalizing, by taking people one at a time. This seemed to me an extraordinary, insightful, gave me an insight into how reconciliation forgiveness actually occurs and what its moral structure is. Let me uh, continue. We went to South Africa. We went to South Africa because South Africa has the world's best liberal democratic constitution and it's turned into a nasty ethnic tyranny based in corruption and rent-seeking. How does that happen? How do you create a liberal order and then watch it uh, deny justice to people who live in these extraordinary shacks? And what do they think? What trust do they have in their elites? What faith do they have in their future if that is their condition? And we spent a lot of time talking to wonderful young people and trying to understand how you have hope in those situations. We went, I'm getting to the end, we went, we went, one of the occupational hazards if, you're, if, if you are a constitutionally hopeful and optimistic liberal, as I am, it's not merely a set of opinions, it's who I've become, is that you would really rather spend your time with nice, moderate, civilized, liberal people. You claim that you are one yourself, and so that's the company you want to keep. It's extremely important in research projects of this to spend your time with people who despise everything you stand for, and he is one of them. <laughs> this is a very important Buddhist monk who hates Muslims, 
and is leading the resistance in Burma to justice and equality for the uh, Rohingya people. And I learned a great deal about the structure of hatred, the moral structure of hatred. Uh, This is a person who emphatically does generalize. And I got a connection between hatred, ideology, and generalization out of this person that was in very remarkable contrast to the, um, the man in Bosnia who said, I don't generalize. Hatred is an ideological generalization. All Muslims are. All Rohingya are. All of the propositional forms are generalizations of it with essentially murderous uh, consequences. Um, finally, partly because of Noburo and Yuihiro, uh, we went to Japan because I wanted to think about um, an issue that often doesn't get much moral attention, which is how do you sustain the virtues of hopefulness when your world has just been destroyed. This is Fukushima. This is Namiya town. Uh, uh, This place suffered in the space of 45 minutes a nine-point Richter scale earthquake, a nuclear plume which devastated the town, and then a tsunami which killed about 300 citizens in the town, all in the space of about 45 minutes. So we wanted to talk to people about how you think about your life in moral terms if the bottom has dropped out of it entirely. Everybody uses the word resilience. It's a word that slips off our tongue. (laughs) One of the things you learn when you do a project like this, if you want to know what a word means, go to a place like this. You really do learn what resilience is and and its connection to hope. And what, is, what was extraordinary in Japan was the deep connection between resilience and hope. And the hope, significantly, was connected to a deep sense of historical continuity in time. Over and over again, Japanese people said to me, in, desti- in desperate situations, we will rebuild because we always have. It was one of these moments when I understood the deep, the extraordinary importance of historical memory and historical faith as a source of hope for the future. Without, it, without that faith that Japan has endured and suffered and that a thousand years ago a similar tsunami hit this town and a thousand years it rebuilt, without that confidence, uh, resilience is impossible. So these are some of the things we talk about, and I now want to move towards some general general conclusions. Get back to my organizing question, which is, is, has human rights become a global ethic? You noticed as I was talking these cases, I seem to walk away from human rights. Let me bring human rights back in. What struck all of us as we traveled was that... There wasn't a person we met, no matter how desperate, no matter how poor, no matter how excluded, no matter how uneducated, no matter how frightened, who didn't simply take it for granted 
that their voice had to be heard when a bunch of foreign strangers walked into their world. If you walked into a favela where there's gunfire, you know, over your head, or you go into a squatter camp where the wind is rat is banging the tin that people make their shacks out of it, there was no one who didn't think my voice matters. There was no one who thought I'm garbage. There was no one who thought I don't count. It was tacit. Nobody ever said it. But that, when I come back, it was that silent assumption of what I'm calling equality of voice, which seems to me one of the most important things to conclude about the modern world. And then the question is, how does this happen? And I think it's not the case that it's because human rights uh, has been ratified in conventions by states. What's happened is much, much more fundamental, which is we've created a post-imperial world. We're all very pessimistic about the world we're in now, but one thing to remember is that in 1945, people with my color of skin believed they had a right to rule other people in perpetuity. No one thinks that now. To that degree, human rights has been part of a moral revolution that can be described as the arrival of a post-imperial dispensation. The self-determination revolution means that in legal terms, but also in psychic terms, the peoples of the world are equal. It is what they, it is what they believe. And it makes the actual inequalities that remain all that more intolerable. I'm talking about equality of result. I'm not talking about equality of opportunity. I'm not talking about, I'm not making the claim that peoples are actually equal. I'm making the claim that they believe passionately that they ought to be in a way that they did not in 1945. The democratic revolution has consolidated that by making popular sovereignty the default setting for political legitimacy everywhere. Even authoritarian regimes have to claim that they serve the people. And the other thing that's happened and has been convulsive in its moral impact has been these domestic battles for emancipation. My life has been, has been morally shaped by black civil rights, by feminism, and most recently by gay equality. This revolution has created an enormous backlash. Let's also be clear. One of the reasons that um, Islamic fundamentalism is resurgent is that it's a, it's a direct answer to a moral revolution in the West, a moral revolution about the moral significance of gay people, women, and people of color. And that battle is what we're living through right now. But let's not forget how decisively it's changed the moral premises we work under. But here's the, here's the turn. Here's the turn in the talk. Here's the moment when I begin to say something that may surprise you and even dismay you. I'm there, I was very struck as we toured and listened to people that they took their equality of voice for granted, but it was equality for, for us, but not for them. In other words, what I'm, what I'm claiming here is that the rights revolution has created an equality norm that's actually divorced from a universal claim. It's equality for us, it's equality for citizens, not equality for strangers. 
And this, it seems to me, is something we haven't noticed, and it's of extraordinarily large uh, significance. And let me try and illuminate what I mean. We, in other words, I'm saying human rights has helped and been part of a much wider post-imperial turn that has made equality of voice a global norm. At the same time, and paradoxically, moral universalism is in retreat. The universalism I mean is, in the human rights paradigm, there's no other. There's only us. The primal fact on which, or the primal supposition on which human rights work is um, the equality of all human subjects and the proposition that otherness has no moral significance and cannot serve as a justification for any kind of exclusion. And the duties of common humanity trump the competing claims of, of political community. And this, and you'll see that this has a public policy consequence, asylum and protection claims to tr- strangers actually trump the claims of, of citizens. When, when you push the universalism very hard, it comes up very hard against the claims that citizens come first, the claims of, of sovereignty. Let me take you further through this. What is very striking when I talk to ordinary people, i.e. us, and I ask them to think about moral universals, what was, what was extremely interesting to me was, the re- despite 80 years of globalization, despite global media, despite these cell phones in our pockets, despite the deluge of data, the moral perspective of everybody I talked to, without exception, was deeply local, not universalist, deeply local. The things that agonized them, that worried them, that occupied the center of their moral frame was what do I owe you? What do I owe you? How do I do right by you? And the you they had in mind was specific, individual, and highly inductive. Generalizations about what they owed to strangers, what they owed to mankind, simply never uh, figured. And, And I'm trying to get you to see the strength of this perspective. Remember I said the guy in Bosnia said, I do not generalize? What I'm trying to get us to see is the deep wisdom of a refusal to universalize, a refusal to generalize, an insistence on particularity, an insistence that there is no such thing as the human race. There's only you and you and you and you ad infinitum. And your individuality matters in moral judgment. Your individuality is central in moral judgment. And the ordinary virtue perspective simply starts from that uh, assumptions. And, and, And this puts in question another assumption about human rights. The assumption in human rights is that human rights is the legal translation of ordinary moral instinct. You don't see that on the ground. You don't see a commitment to moral universalism, a sense that we're all just human beings here. People know that to be meaningless as a basis for moral judgment. What they're concerned about is to discriminate, to make choices among and between groups and people. Um, And they start from a priority that they accord to themselves as opposed to others. The key moral distinction in all of our discussions was self, other, citizen, stranger. 
And the assumption further was that the stranger was other, different, not necessarily frightening, not necessarily hostile, but other, not a citizen. And for almost all the people we talk to, whatever their race, whatever their class, whatever their, their, their level of income, race, religion, gender, and nationality were the primary starting points and the ending points of moral reflection. They never thought about human beings as such. They only thought about people who were black or white or gay or straight or female or male. Otherness and difference was primary in all the moral conversations that I had over three years, wherever I was. And so this suggests that there is a gap between the moral language that we associate with human rights and its structuring assumptions and the language you see when people talk about ordinary virtue. And let me try and focus this because it has a public policy consequence that we need to think about, which is how do we think about tolerance? How do we think about citizens and strangers? How do we think about, get this, migration and refugees? This has a direct consequence for how we think about this, which we need to, which we need to understand. What struck me over and over again is that in the ordinary virtue perspective, the language that allowed people to capture the best of them was the language of the gift, not the language of rights. Right? I want you to think about the difference between the language of the gift and the language of the right in relation to toleration of strangers. Because what, what you saw is people said, I have no general obligation to strangers. Talking to me about the universal obligations I have to all human beings as such doesn't help me to make any discriminating choices, and I have to make discriminating choices. I want to be generous. I want to be hospitable to the stranger. That's the language of the gift. But the crucial feature of the language of the gift is the giver chooses, the giver selects. The number of gifts a giver can give is finite. If I give all of you a present, it's not a present anymore. I have to give you the present and Joel doesn't get it. The language of the gift is selective, it's partial, and it's exclusionary. But it is the language that carries the deepest moral impulses we have towards generosity and hospitality to others. And I'm submitting that rights language is much weaker as a carrier of obligation to strangers than gift language. And that has disturbing implications. The implications disturb me. The most disturbing of, of which is that the gift giver can decide, well, actually, I'm not going to give any gifts to anybody. My answer to the problem of refugees and migration is razor wire, actually. Right? So where does that leave us? Does it leave us abandoning rights talk, which at least has the capacity to say to those putting up razor wire, you do have obligations. You do have obligations to human beings as such. Or do we go with the language of the gift and, and seek to make the language of the gift 
uh, a language of generosity rather than a language of um, exclusion. Just to get this more clear, um, because it's a real problem, this is not an abstraction. If you look at what problem Angela Merkel had in Germany in October and November and December, a problem that may sink her political career and move Germany very substantially to the right, it's partly because the German Grundgesetz, the fundamental law, makes the asylum obligation obligatory obligation of of the German state for excellent reasons, for excellent reasons that have to do with the catastrophe of of uh, the Nazi era. So the Germans have yoked themselves to a universalist obligation to take in everyone who has a well-founded fear of persecution. And that looks absolutely fine if there's 75 of them. But what do you do if the number is infinite? You then have a constitutional obligation crafted around universalist norms that does not allow a state to do what every state has to do, which is to triage, to choose, right? And this is a problem that, in other words, human rights has made more difficult to solve. I am, by the way, just in case you think I'm a heartless son of a gun, I am the son and grandson of refugees. I take this stuff very personally. I want to have generous asylum and refugee policies, and generous migration policies. They're good in moral terms, they're good in economic terms. But folks, we have a problem. Rights talk doesn't give states any capacity effectively to triage when, when, the, uh, when the grounds are solid. That is, states have the right to, 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 to kick back unfounded claims. But do the thought experiment what you do when all the, the claims are well-founded. There are three million people in Syria with an absolutely copper-bottomed claim to (laughs) escaping a well-founded fear of persecution, right? Three million. So this is the issue that we uh, have to deal with. And what I'm trying to capture, because those who are opposed to asylum and refugee generosity are often cast as racist, Islamophobes. I'm trying to get us to think that, in fact, there's a conceptual problem here. There are people who want to be generous. There are people who want to be hospitable. But there are people who want to have the right to choose to whom the gift is given. And I'm suggesting politically, those are the only friends we've got, actually. And so we have to work with those who understand the language of the gift and want to continue to give it. And so I'm talking as an ex-politician, trying to figure out what language is going to help us here, because the razor wire is going up all over Europe. Brexit was fought on this and other issues. And what I don't want us to think is that somehow a language of exclusion has captured all the moral ground here. There's a huge uncaptured ground of moral generosity and hospitality around the idea of a gift. And that somehow is the language we have to find if we're going to find a way out of here. But it has costs, let's be clear. 
Citizens, if, it's, if we're talking about a gift relationship towards between citizens and strangers, then s- citizens define the terms. And the terms of integration are we say yes to you on condition that you say yes to us. Gift relationships are relationships of gratitude, right? What are we entitled to ask of those strangers to whom we give the gift? And the gift is safety, citizenship, welfare. It's a big gift. It's the most valuable thing that any group of human beings can give to another. And I'm arguing counterintuitively, the language of universals after three years on the road is extraordinarily weak, it seems to me, just observationally. Whereas the language of generosity and hospitality is resilient and strong. Don't talk about, don't appeal to universals. Reinforce the moral virtue of taking people as they come. Don't talk about obligation. Talk about hospitality. Don't talk about rights. Talk, above all, about mutual recognition. The strongest claim always is it could be you. It could be you. That basic sense of uh, seems to me to be uh, extremely important. I've gone on longer than I uh, uh, intended. I am coming to an end. You can tell that this was a journey that changed me that put liberal, my liberal conscience to very severe test. Um, the purpose of this lecture is to put you to the test and then for us to discuss and for me to go home and think again. And I hope you will give me lots of questions for me to think again. Thank you for your attention.